Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name is Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Guillaume Desvirek, the founder and CEO of Well, a company that built a digital solution helping healthcare providers to unify the full life cycle of patient interactions. The product helped to reach over 31 million patients. Guillaume is an amazing CEO and shared a lot of interesting stories. I hope you'll learn as much as I did. Hi, Guillaume, and welcome to the very first episode of Digisection. Thank you for joining today. Thank you, Oscar. Great to be here. I think there's no better way to start analyzing changes in modern healthcare than talking about upgrading the standards of patient interactions and communication. Could you tell our listeners more about Well and the core of your solution? So Well does last mile patient communications for healthcare. We're trying to um, upend this status quo where healthcare is one of the worst industries when it comes to customer service. They're very, very good at many, many other things. Um, but unfortunately, they haven't quite nailed customer service yet the way uh, we have experiences in other industries, whether it's hospitality or retail or something of that nature. So our goal is really to look at the end-to-end -end patient journey, unify all the communications going to patients, and to make it really, really easy to interact with your healthcare providers for everything from finding a doctor to the uh, day of appointment to ongoing care maintenance well after you leave the doctor's office. So one phone number in your, in your phone book that you can call or text, get an answer in a reasonable time period. Um, that's the dream. Okay. And what would you say is the unique tech feature making well, um, better than competitors. So if we do our job right, people think that what we do is very simple. It's, you know, the Whitman quote, if I had uh, more time, I'd have written fewer words to, to deliver great, you know, effective communication, you're actually delivering less and you're doing it thoughtfully. And, you know, we have from the beginning of the company, we decided to focus just on healthcare. So we're a vertically focused company. And we've also um, chosen to focus just on the problem of communication. Uh, there are so, uh, the, the healthcare experience is one of the most nuanced and complicated and highly vulnerable experiences that patient can go through. When you think about eligibility and authorization and billing and the actual appointment and referrals and labs and ongoing maintenance and medication, I could go on, right? It's complicated. Um, so we've focused just to solve for that last mile communication, sending the communication to the patient, interpreting the response and either responding automatically or routing it to a live human being. Um, so we've been focused on the, on the vertical of healthcare. We've been focused just on communication. And we've also chosen to serve, uh, the enterprise segment. And it's not because the enterprise segment is any better, um, than, um, single proprietor businesses but they have very different needs. And we wanted our team to be focused on a market, on a specific solution, 
and on specific users and how it would be most effective to solve that problem for them. Um, and now we've been at it for almost six years. Um, we've been fortunate to, to get a lot of traction and to be able to um, drive a, a lot of great value for the healthcare industry. And I think in large part, it's, it's all been because of that focus. Great. And I also know that uh, you are a deep believer in RCS, the rich communication services. Uh, for those listeners that haven't heard about this term before, it's a communication protocol between mobile telephone carriers and between phone and carrier aiming at replacing SMS messages. Could you tell us more about the potential of RCS in healthcare? So I'm going to get to RCS, but I want to start with SMS, which is you, you have to start there to get to rich communications. Um, the reason we initially architected the platform around SMS is because we wanted a frictionless experience. The healthcare experience is very different than, uh, say, hailing an Uber or ordering on Amazon. The average American only goes to the physician a few times a year. The average American purchases an item on Amazon many, many more times. So for us, when we were looking at the different mediums for facilitating better relationships between patients and providers, it didn't make any sense to invest in an app because we wanted to solve for the majority of patients and their relationship with their providers. Um, when you look at those three interactions a year, you're not ever going to create a bottom four app on the screen that the patient's going to use every single day. So SMS was the natural entry point. But SMS has some limitations. Um, you know, your segments can be limited to 160 characters unless you're smart and do some splicing and follow all the carrier rules. And then when you want the patient to complete any sort of action that isn't 160 characters, you have to link them out to a web page. And you get a huge drop off when patients tap on that link because it creates friction. Um, and you also are not able to reach some of the population who might not have smartphones, who might not have a Wi-Fi or uh, 3G or 5G these days connection. So it has some limitations. What rich communication services does is it says, hey, we're gonna build a new protocol that goes beyond 160 characters and lets you render rich user experiences in messaging. So if you've ever used Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or WeChat, these technologies that are so big um, in APAC and EMEA, um, those text messaging experiences feel very different. I mean, Oscar, I could pull out my phone right now, find you on WhatsApp, and I could pay you 20 bucks. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd press a button and you'd press accept and you'd get it. Now imagine that for healthcare. Imagine that you get a text, a simple text, Oscar, your appointment's tomorrow, can you show up? Well, you live in Texas and you just had a massive snowstorm and you can't get to the appointment. Your water is off, a pipe burst, you're like, no way. You know, I can't make it, you text back, I can't make it. Imagine if the response was, would you like to do a video visit instead? And instead of a link linking you out to an app that you have to download, what if that video launched natively in your messaging window? The, the promise to me is that if you lose a bunch of people tapping on the link, if I can render that video and messaging, I can deliver better care to you quicker. Now, now, well, as a company, I have no interest, um, not because it's not a good problem. I don't have interest in being a video company or a paperwork company or a billing company. Those are really hard problems that also deserve focus. I want to build that last mile. 
that integrates with those leading platforms so that you, Oscar, have a completely frictionless experience from the moment you choose a healthcare system to the day you know uh, you're taking your final breath, uh, that you had just had a very seamless experience and a great relationship with your care provider. And and would you say that um, RCS is having the potential to outcompete like most of the healthcare apps and basically you know uh, downloading uh, an app from either uh, Google Play Store or App Store and rather just you know texting. So apps aren't going away. I do hope that RCS can over time replace SMS the way that we see it have the majority of, of market share again overseas. Apps aren't going away. Um, health systems, you know, and I, and I tell this to health systems too, they always have to invest in apps because everybody has chronics. I'll give you an example outside of healthcare that may make this more meaningful to everybody. Um, the average American flies a couple times a year. So airlines, from a usage perspective are very similar to healthcare. I know that's a very weird comparison, but United Airlines is more like a hospital than Amazon is like a hospital because the, the usage of those two services are roughly similar, about three times per year. Um, United Airlines does a ton of text messaging, but they also have an app. Now, I am not an average American when it comes to flying. Pre-COVID, I flew 100 legs in 2019, so 100 individual segments. I am the chronic patient in healthcare when it comes to airlines. I'm on that app every single day. The United app, I should check on my phone, uh, is still on the front page and I haven't flown in a year. I'm checking my loyalty every day. I'm checking my points towards status. I'm rebooking and rescheduling on the app. But if I flew three times a year, that thing would have been auto archived on my iPhone a long, long time ago. So apps aren't going away. Um, apps make sense for chronics and for specialty patients. Things like uh, a first-time mother who's going through pregnancy. Geez, she's going to be worried about her health every single day. She should have an app. In fact, when my wife was going through uh, pregnancy, we downloaded an app and we were on it every single day and we read all the... So apps aren't going to die. Um, but when it comes to the average person in healthcare, enabling that better relationship really needs to eliminate all friction because it's not worth... The, the juice isn't worth the squeeze to download an app and learn a new system and keep it maintained when you go to the doctor three times a year, it's not going to happen. You're right. There are no barriers. And so uh, how to make healthcare the, the leading industry in customer experience? What would be your advice for um, hospital executives and engineers and maybe new company founders? Oh, you're coming at me strong, Oscar. I should have expected nothing less on your first podcast. <laughs> um, look, I came into this industry because uh, I had no healthcare background and I truly just truly wanted my experience and the experience of my friends and family to be more seamless. I was going through some hard healthcare times on my own and I was really burdened by the stress of managing that. And it seemed backwards to me. It didn't make any sense. The stress mm -hmm. wasn't because the people weren't nice and the facilities weren't nice. The stress was because I was looking at my phone every day and, and trying to see if I had a missed call and calling people back and getting mail I didn't understand and I could never talk to anybody. I had no point of contact. Like that was the stress. That's what created the stress. It had nothing to do with the people. It was that healthcare is complicated. In many cases, healthcare is on the bleeding edge of technology. As a result, they've acquired a lot of technology and a lot of that technology needs to connect with me, the patient. So I've got a bunch of people reaching out to me and it's too much for one person to manage. Um, so my advice to, to healthcare um, 
leaders, uh, let's start with the hospital, you know, a physician practice side first is that you really need to own your relationship with your customers. And that means putting a stake in the ground when it comes to communication and saying, this is our protocol, this is our platform, whether you build it or buy it or, you know, wait and see to, to, to see how the market turns. Eventually, you're going to have to decide on a single platform for patient communication. That is the only way to deliver frictionless, streamlined communications. Um, and I believe that they should request that their vendors integrate into that platform the same way they request their vendors integrate into Epic or Cerner or Meditech or one of those EHRs. So fundamentally, uh, that's a belief I have around how we flip this. We need healthcare to adopt standards, force all vendors onto that standard. Then healthcare owns all the workflows. Healthcare owns all the triage rules. And healthcare can be that single point of contact to the patient, even though it's far more complicated behind the scenes. For entrepreneurs, uh, I would say two things. One, if you care about communication, give me a call and come work for me because this cannot be done, you know, with, with one, with one, 200 people. Um, it's going to take a village to, to solve this problem at scale. Um, and two would be that, you know, there, there are so many opportunities right for innovation in healthcare and that, um, a lot of the, that, that last mile piece of communication, I would recommend that, that folks either build a platform to solve that communication issue or solve other challenges and plug into those systems, which makes everybody more efficient, right? It's, it's focus. So um, come work for me or use my technology. Um, how is that for a, a super direct and salesy answer? There will be so many people, you know, reaching out to you. <laughs> There's so many different <laughs> channels. So that would be great for your podcast and great for me. That's so. right. It's going to make everyone happy. And so uh, right now, by the way, well, is a uh, you know hugely successful company with, with a very um, high growth. But could you tell us more about the early days of Well? It's always so interesting for me to learn about the first sales. You know, I know as an entrepreneur myself that it's probably one of the hardest job for like you know uh, early founders uh, to close the first, second, third customer. Could you tell us how you did that? And if you, of course, can disclose that, what yeah. were the strategies behind it? Well, so first of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, there, There is a good story here. Um, there's a lot of debate around what the first sale was. And maybe you can tell me after I tell you the story what you would consider the first sale. So I basically locked myself in a bunker for four months um, ideating on how well would come to life and how we would solve this problem. And once we had figured that out, I hired a development group. Um, so I did not hire engineers. I hired a development group and I interviewed a lot of them. Um, and I paid them my life savings to build me a prototype in one week. No joke. Wow. We started like Friday night at 8 p.m. <laughs> I gave them my life savings. And the next Friday at 8 p.m., I expected a functional prototype I could sell in the market. Now it was not EHR integrated yet, but it allowed you to upload a roster of patients, automate some interactions and communicate with them at scale. So we had this initial prototype done, my co-founder and I were leading that work, and we had um, decided that we were going to pick the allied healthcare market as our initial target. Allied healthcare is dietitians, nutritionists, 
folks of that nature that deal with ongoing care. So we needed to figure out how to reach those people. Um, and there happened to be an exposition happening a couple weeks later in, I forget where, maybe Tennessee. It was called the Food and Nutrition Conference. And, you know, we had no money. Like I couldn't, I could barely afford a flight uh, because I had spent my life savings and I didn't have huge credit card limits. And so I flew to St. Louis where my founder lived. We rented a U-Haul. Um, we got one of his friends to build us a booth and we drove out like three or four hours to this conference and we might've slept in the car or a very cheap motel. I think it was a cheap motel. And, uh, we were on this mat. It was very intimidating because we were on this massive expo floor with hundreds of companies. And by the way, like all we have is a wood booth and a computer on our thing. Um, saying like text your patients, everybody else is like giving away free food and samples. Like we are the odd ducks and that weekend we signed up 200 providers onto our software. Now we were giving it away for free. Um, and I have no idea who the first of those 200 people was that signed up, but one argument would be that that was our first sale at that food and nutrition conference, those 200 free users, about 200. Um, so then we went back home and for a couple weeks, you know, we watched the usage and tweaked the software. And then um, we made a sale to one of Joe's, my co-founder's friends. So his friend was a consultant who knew somebody that was doing texting. So we were telling everybody in the world, we're building texting for healthcare, right? So everybody knew this. So when they heard that somebody was looking for texting in healthcare, they'd call us. So he introduced us to this client of his who told us they were looking for physician texting. And Oscar, you're a physician, right? So doctors yeah. talking to doctors, you're familiar with the software, but that's not what we did. <laughs> so we convinced them that that was a really good problem, but we were not interested in solving it. We had a physician, to patient texting tool that could solve different problems for them. And they bit, they said, that sounds like a great solution. They believed in the vision of delivering better experience to their patients and they bought our software and they paid us. And then we did the EHR integration. We, we made a lot of enhancements, it took us a few months before we took them live. So that was, okay. that was arguably second option for customer number one. And then the third option, um, we went through the um, Cedar sinai accelerator and I had the opportunity to pitch their CIO. He rejected me, um, but eventually I convinced some of his um, underlings that that we were the right software and and, and he came around and, and they became a customer. So those are the first three big sales. The way we actually cracked this code though, was I read a book called Predictable Revenue and I hired a sales development rep who sat right next to me. And for weeks I would listen to him make calls and we would tweak it. And eventually we got a demo and eventually that demo turned into a sale. And eventually that sale turned into ROI. And to this day, I'm in an empty office right now, but the sales development team sits right outside my desk. You know, there's just a sea of desks in front of me. So long story. Um, so now the question for you is, which is the first sale? Is it the nutrition? <laughs> is it the, the friend of a consultant who we convinced that they needed a different piece of software? Is it Cedar sinai or is it the first sale from uh, a cold call? Oh, I think I would actually know, uh, count the literally first one that you said that with the nutritionist. Yeah. I'm impressed how well organized, focused, and, you know, uh, persistent you stayed through, through that time between like the first touch point with the very first customer and then selling to, to Cedars. Have you already raced rounds at that point? We were bootstrapped. Um, we were bootstrapped throughout the nutrition period. We were bootstrapped with our first client. 
um, that, well, now I'm calling the second one, the first one, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, the friend of the consultant, mm -hmm. I guess the second client. Um, and then with Cedars, um, we were able to take a convertible note with the accelerator. So I guess that would be called pre-seed. It wasn't a ton of money. It was a hundred thousand dollars. It wasn't that much money. Um, but it was technically an investment. And then we raised, we raised our seed round after that. So we probably had about 20 customers when we raised our seed round. And I will tell you though, you know, I had spent my life savings in one week and that's not an exaggeration. Um, I, I had nothing left. And what I did, um, I call burning the ships. Uh, there's a whole story about that, that your listeners can Google. But what I did is I sent an email to all of my friends and family who had gone into banking or consulting when I was in college. I thought they probably have some savings, right? Those are the, the fields where you make a lot of money. So I emailed them all and said, hey, I'm starting a company. Here's what we do. We're going to sell to nutritionists. We're going to sell patient communication software, and we're going to make the world a better place. I said, you can all put in, I accept one check size, $20,000. That's it. No hard feelings if you're not in, but just tell me if you're in or out. Here's the terms. Here's the valuation. Let me know. And I had 10 people respond and say, I'm in. Now, I had to take some calls and convince some of them a little bit. And it was shocking to me how some of them were just blindly like, yep, here you go. And I was like, is that your life savings? Because so then I felt I say burn the ships because I was out of money. My closest friends gave me money. So all of a sudden I had this and, and I didn't consider that money to be an investment. I consider that to be debt, even though legally it was an investment. I never would have had to pay them back. I told myself that if this company didn't work, I would pay every single one of them back. So I considered myself $200,000 in debt after I took that friends and family mm. money. You're a very good fundraiser. I am actually, I, I'm not a very good fundraiser. I've become better. I've actually, I have a lot of horror stories from fundraising. Oh. So, um, <laughs> and by the way, how to make fundraising less stressful. I think there's so many founders right now, you know, listening to this and raising their seed rounds or a rounds. Uh, we all know that it's, you know, basically, uh, I mean, the foundations are as always, uh, human relationships, but, uh, are there any tips and tricks or things that, you know, people could apply and yes. just get more comfortable with this process? One, be organized, build a spreadsheet. Uh, and I have samples, your, your mm -hmm. listeners after they either request a job or whatever I said earlier, <laughs> I'll give them the spreadsheet. I'm just kidding. I'll give the spreadsheet for free. Uh, be organized. I, uh, it took me all the way until series B to build the spreadsheet the right way. And I finally nailed it. And that really helped me manage the process better. So one is be organized. Two is start early. Um, start building these relationships early. There are folks that I would have raised from recently that I met five years ago. So those relationships yeah. are important to cultivate. Um, so start early and, and stay, you know, stay cordial with those folks, you know, reach out to them once a year. Hopefully they reach out to you. That's two. Three is don't waste your time. If you meet with an investor and they don't feel bought in, they're never going to come around. They're option seeking. Um, I put any investor who I talked to who wasn't forthcoming with me, I put on my DNC list, do not contact ever again. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I wanted to raise money from people who would be straight with me, even if it was what I didn't want to hear. So I always respected investors who told me why they weren't going to invest. 
and I kept them on my list because those are the types of people I wanted to do business with later. Um, but if investors are passive, they don't seem very interested, come back to me when you have more traction. That's garbage. They're not interested. They're option seeking. Um, and I wasted so much time chasing those people and doing so many meetings that I didn't have to. So for me, those are the three things. Be super organized. We're in a tight process. I have a spreadsheet template I can share mm -hmm. to um, uh, start early. And three is don't waste your time. Okay. Okay. And if we can just get back for um, a couple of minutes uh, to interfaces and what's next um, in, in the space of communication. So you said once that the patient communication should be unified, meaning all messages coming to one place, accessible, so via preferred communication channels, uh, and human. And I love to talk about the third point, because in one of your um, earlier interviews, you said that medical bots shouldn't exist if they don't pass the Turing test. So I wanted to ask if, you know, there's any way you would create a medical Turing test and how would you, you know, <laughs> create such an experiment? <laughs> you know, there's probably a way to do this with our technology at scale. It's a good idea. You have my brain thinking, Oscar. Um, uh, the litmus test I use, and you know, the Turing test is a bit of a hyperbole. The litmus test I use is, you know, if I got this message, would I respond, stop, all caps. <laughs> it's kind of like when you pick up the phone and you just start screaming, agent, 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 or you press zero, you know, nobody wants to go down the bot rabbit hole. And one of the concerns I have just with how much um, airtime chatbots get in healthcare is that we're almost leapfrogging a very important part of the solution, which is we're doing a lot of things over the phone today and over snail mail. Sure, it's not efficient. Sure, it's expensive. Sure, patients don't like it. But if you skip over that and automate everything over text, you think patients are going to like that? Of course not. Mm -hmm. Like I was talking about earlier, how nuanced and vulnerable and fragile healthcare is. Like, do you think people want to talk to a bot? Our bots... First of all, our bots are so far away from passing the Turing test. They have to be so deliberate, right? So if you say, Oscar, if you say, hey, I want to cancel my appointment. Well, look, I can auto respond and say you've been canceled. Like, well, you know, it's a bot probably like no human would respond to you within like three milliseconds. But like, do you care? No, you only care if your next response is I changed my mind. And it's like, sorry, I don't understand your request. Like, that's when you care. So. I believe, and from the beginning of well, I believe that you need to build a system where your fail safe is a human. And that human, you need to have the right alerting and UI tools in place to enable that human to respond in a reasonable period of time. So now the question becomes, becomes what is reasonable? I don't think, you know, is it one minute, one hour, one day, one week? I would argue that what is reasonable depends on the channel. On live chat on a website, what's reasonable is probably 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know about you, but if I type a question on a website and in 30 seconds I don't get a response, X, X out. On text message, an hour, oh, okay. you know, you send a text. Mm -hmm. If you get a response in an hour, you're probably satisfied. A day, you know, just think about you and your friends. You're like, geez, they haven't responded to me yet. I'm getting a little frustrated. Email, a day is probably appropriate. 
Um, so it, it's by channel. I'm totally moving away from your question. Um, <laughs> the answer is we could probably do this at scale with well, and we could analyze how often patients respond stop to a message. And we would know, I think, pretty definitively what types of workflows are being automated today that aren't being appreciated by patients. And those, to me, wouldn't pass the Turing test. So I like it. I think we're going to do it. Great idea. <laughs> and when do you see voice AI becoming a sort of standard for communication, also in healthcare? Is it going to be, you know, 5, 10 or 20 years from now? You know, I, I'm, I'm so excited about the promise of voice. Um, I was uh, talking to my wife about this recently, and I was just curious. I used to work at Google, and, and I was just curious what she thought the most popular queries for the voice assistants are today. And my guess was that 90% of the usage is for three things. Weather, what time is it, and play this song. Because that's all I use my that's all I use my Google Assistant for. Um, I think the world is still figuring out how to weave voice into other workflows, right? Right now, I'd feel a little uncomfortable if my Google Home was like, "Your appointment is coming in an hour. Traffic mm -hmm. is twenty six minutes." I would feel a little uncomfortable. So I think part of it is probably um, just consumer readiness. You know, and that could accelerate quickly. I think consumers could get there probably not a year from now, but probably in the next couple of years. But then the workflows, when does it make sense to talk to somebody over one of these voice devices? That I don't think we've solved yet. You know, we've only just solved it for live chat, right? That's really marketing use cases on a website. Like that, that's what live chat is for. Um, but I don't think we've solved that for voice yet. So I think we're a few years away. I hope it's quicker because I think it holds so much promise. And frankly, well, as it does become more mainstream, we'll need to consider voice as part of our communication set. But I still think we're a few years away. I'd love now to talk a bit about the consumerization of healthcare. So we observed many digital providers getting stronger um, and huge deals being made say, mergers such as uh, Teladoc Libongo and IPOs like GoodRx, One Medical, Clover Health, or most recently, um, Hims. What is your take on this trend? And uh, how do you see that shaping the access to healthcare? Well, I'm a subscriber to several of those companies. And I think it comes back to a similar theme, which is convenience you know, creating frictionless user experiences um, and, and taking the work out of being a consumer of healthcare. Um, so I, I love the trend. I, I love that, you know, we, we, for a long, long time, we had, you know, the public markets were void of consumer-centric healthcare companies. You know, there were none. You hadn't seen healthcare IT. When I started this company, healthcare IT was not a sexy space. Um, you know, investors had not seen a ton of success from healthcare IT, and I think it's a very different scenario right now. So I love it, you know, on a personal level as a consumer, I love it as a founder of a company in this broader space. Um, I do think it's helping accelerate a lot of change in what many would consider more legacy and traditional, um, healthcare providers. I think a prime example of this that hits close to home for me is Cerner. You know, Cerner has chosen to 
really invest in their partnership strategy. You know, we are partners of theirs now, which is why I bring it up as an example where mm -hmm. I think they're understanding that, um, you know, to meet the needs of consumers and the timelines that consumers expect, they're not going to be able to do it on their own. You know, Cerner is a massive cruise ship. They're not a speedboat. So they want to work with, you know, they want to bring some speedboat captains next to the ship sure. so that they can deliver value to their, to their constituents. So I think it's a fantastic thing for the industry. It's, it's, you know, for how um, really debilitating and sad COVID has been. Um, if that, I, I guess the glass half full thinking or the bright side is that I, everyone I think would, would agree that it has accelerated the way healthcare organizations think about technology. Um, what's the saying, never waste a crisis. I think that's a prime example of what we've gone through over the last year. Yeah, you're right. And, and by the way, do you have any, um, contrarian viewpoints when it comes to our part of, of the industry and, and what's happening right now? Oh, I have, uh, uh -huh. I have plenty. Um, I, I think, um, the biggest one for me is that I, uh, you'll like this as a physician, um, when it comes to healthcare, I really believe in the old school model back to the 1800s where a physician comes to your house on a horse and boogie and you have boogie or buggy. I don't know how that word is said, but where you have a relationship with your physician. Um, and maybe I'm weird. Maybe I'm one of very few people like that, but I tend to believe that most people when it comes to their healthcare really care about who they interact with. Um, they don't want a menu of a million providers and to go with somebody random. It's much more important that they go to somebody they trust who knows their history. And so I believe in empowering physicians. I believe that physicians should own the relationship with patients. I don't think businesses like mine have any business owning the relationship. Um, and I think that's contrarian. I think a lot of tech companies would prefer mm -hmm. to own the consumer because when you own the consumer, there's a lot you can do. There's a lot of money to be made. You know, look at Google, look at Facebook. When you own, when you own the the content, when you own the channel, you know, you can become very, very wealthy. Um, I believe the physicians should own the patient. You know, well doesn't have a brand to patients. Uh, if you're a physician using well, your patients don't know. Uh, Oscar is saved as a contact in my address book. I think that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think very many companies, I know for a fact, many companies don't feel the same way. So you believe in short in old school medicine empowered by, by tech yeah. and the beauty of the relationship. The new horse and buggy is text messaging and hopefully RCS and then maybe voice in the future. And, you know, being the founder and especially a CEO like you is a lonely sport. Uh, I'd even say an extreme sport. Uh, I heard that you used to run ultra marathons and also do Ironmans. Uh, did this shape your persistence and resilience? Do you think that, you know, it helped you right now in your career as an entrepreneur? You know, it's interesting. So I've never actually done an ultra marathon, but I've done many Ironman, many Ironmen, I should say. Um, it should really be called Iron Person, but anyhow, a different debate. Um, it's interesting because a lot of folks who do the Ironman event are CEOs and they run companies. There's actually a whole division. I forget what it's called, but it's just CEOs. 
So I think there's just a certain grit that you have to be willing to tolerate to found and scale a company. And that journey is very similar to the journey of an Ironman. My last Kona, uh, which is the Ironman in Hawaii, you know, I had two flat tires. I had a ton of issues in that race. And I would assume that many Ironman make successful CEOs because you can't be out there for eight, nine, 10 hours. You, mm-hmm. you, there, there's got to be some sort of determination to either get to the finish line or win to put yourself through that. I'll definitely have to try it one day. I was only doing half marathons like five or six years ago and and regularly playing tennis. But, you know, that's the most extreme sport for me. <laughs> well, you know, I think any any sport falls into that. And I, and I have heard that you are a, quite a good tennis player. So um, and you are also a founder. So, it you know, it we have a sample size of two, but right now we're two for two. Everyone is right now talking about the vaccinations. Uh, so far, more than 68 million doses of jabs have been given. In the last week, an average of 1.3 million doses per day were administered. Um, I heard that also well is a huge help in the process of rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, we've been, um, both when, when COVID happened, um, we became very involved in trying to figure out how to help with education, um, as well as, you know, coordination of, of COVID tests. And as we move from testing to vaccination, we've applied some of our similar thinking. And what's interesting is it's not just about scheduling the vaccine. There's actually, it's, it's far more complicated. Um, there's everything from, are you eligible for the vaccine? What should you expect? You know, uh, education to help people decide whether they want the vaccine or not, because there's a lot of false information out there. Then, of course, to scheduling uh, the first dose, but also the second dose. And then um, adverse outcome reporting to, you know, to, to the government bodies that are tracking that information, as well as the pharmaceutical companies. So there's actually quite a big lift required for our customers to effectively distribute the vaccine. And then, you know, we're not talking about their usual flow, right? There are these max vaccination sites that are seeing five, 10,000 patients a day, right? In one site, you know, that is an order of magnitude of scale that these organizations have never had before. And you can't do that with a 200 person call center, right? You not, you need to find a way mm-hmm. to um, effectively let patients know, provide them reassurance, you know, around the vaccine and whether they're, appro- you know, whether it makes sense for them to get it help them through that first and second dose in the monitoring period. So we've been helping on on all of those quadrants. I, I suspect that the vast majority of our customers have workflows configured in well to, to handle the vaccine. There's another use case I'll mention, which is just um, supply. A lot of these vaccines require cold storage. Um, so if anybody misses their appointments during the day or something happens, you know, like in Texas, you know, last week, uh, horrible. Right. But they had power outages and they had vaccines that they had to deploy. We had a customer who sent a mass communication to their community and just said, look, we have X many vaccines. If you can get here, we'll give it to you because it's better that somebody gets vaccinated than the vaccine spoils. Um, So those are five or six of the ways that that people have been using well to manage communications with their customers. I still think there's a promised land I'd like us to get to. You know, I'd like Oscar to be able to text his provider who's in his phone book because 
he no longer has a horse and buggy and you like your provider and you want to have a relationship <laughs> with him. And I'd like you to be able to text and say, Hey, you know, um, I need to travel next week. Um, I wanted to know if you could help me coordinate a vaccine. And I, I would love for that text to turn into, Hey, Oscar, you're not eligible yet, but sometimes we have an excess of supply. You've been added to a list. And if we have excess of supply, you'll get a text letting you know where you can show up and by what time, like, that'd be a cool workflow. We're not, we're not quite there yet. Um, uh, and my guess is that COVID will be pretty well handled before we get there as a technology platform. Um, and how long does it take to um, implement the well platform? Yeah, so we um, we have deployed uh, a, a version of us, our software. We brought a, a version of our software to market that can be deployed in as little as five days. Um, in as little as a big caveat there, because there are some things that could extend that timeline, and there are um, the way we implement is a little bit different than we normally would. Our normal implementation, you know, is thirty to ninety days. Okay, um, okay. and is it is much more um, intensive, but. We, we took a step back to figure out how we could get our software operational, solving the problem as quickly as possible. Cause a lot of these organizations, none of the, nobody has 90 days to wait, you know, they need a solution yesterday. Um, so we've gotten, you know, we've gotten our solution live in as little as five days. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been really rewarding to see the impact it's had on the community. Yeah, that's a great, great work and, and also very impactful for everyone during these uh, hard times. As my final question, I'd love to reiterate on the question about how should we guide young people listening to this podcast right now about their future, say, if they'd like to start a company. I mean, we for sure know that uh, they should come to you as <laughs> point number one, but say they're, they're considering uh, starting a, a startup company in the healthcare space what would you encourage them to uh, to focus on and and what kind of you know space to to research as as the primary one? You know, I, I can't even directly answer your question because having gone through this journey myself, I know that the initial idea is likely to change. And all that matters is being really passionate about solving a problem and being willing to do it at all costs. And if you have that, you should start a company and you should, and you will figure it out. And many, many people will give you advice, but most of that advice you should throw away, including every day, everything I've said in this podcast. Um, and you will chart your own journey based on the unique needs that you're solving for and the situation in the market at that time. And what you thought you were going to do is probably going to be a lot different than you did. Um, I would encourage folks to enter the healthcare space because I think there's so much to be solved. It's an exciting space. It's good for society. It's good for the world. Um, go into it with open eyes. Go, in it, go into it with a ton of passion and a ton of grit, and you'll be, you'll be, you will either learn a ton, which to me is a gift no one can ever take away from you, or you'll be wildly successful and you'll solve a problem. So I don't think there's any way to lose. Guillaume, thank you for your advice and thank you for this conversation. Thank you very much, Oscar. It was a pleasure.
If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Digisection on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or just go to our website, digisection.fm. See you next time.